This is John Martinka, and welcome to the Getting the Deal Done podcast series. And my special guest today is someone I have known for about 20 years, Bill Hanlon, a certified public accountant and an expert in business valuation. Welcome, Bill. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. Bill is with the firm Hanlon Moss Yee. Susan Yee is his wife. And the website is Hanlon, H-A-N-L-I-N-M-O-S-S-Y-I.com. They do taxes. He does business valuations. They have an office in China that is for American companies that do business and have a location in China, as well as serving Chinese residents who have assets and business here in the United States. So, Bill, let's start out and... Talk about business valuations for the small to lower middle market size range. You know, obviously, sure. we all look at financial statements. What do you concentrate right. on besides those financial statements? Well, business valuation really is an exercise in providing uh, both the buyer and the seller value based on expected future earnings or, or value of assets in the future. So the financial statements, of course, are historical, and they'll tell you, well, this is what we have made, and this is what we have had. So the exercise of a business valuation is, what do we look like tomorrow after a transaction is, is completed in terms of the ability for the new investor to make money? Okay. So we concentrate on all those things that measure risk. What's happening in the economy? COVID was a big one for a while. What's happening with the industry? Is it evolving? Is it changing? Is it stable? Uh, what's happening with the owners? Are they micromanagers? Or are they going to leave behind a team that will be able to pick that business up and run with it while the new owner figures out what's going on? So it's all about analysis of risk, but the financial statements play a big part in that because it's a roadmap of where the company has been. Okay. Uh, when we look at the statements and we look at the earnings and a common term is EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortization. Uh, tell me how you use that, say, versus free cash flow uh, and, you know, say net income from operations, etc. Because there is a there's an alphabet soup of earnings yeah, acronyms. There's an alphabet soup and depending on who you're talking to, one of those is going to be important. To most people, net income is, is pretty important. That'd be net income after taxes, regardless of whether the entity is uh, uh, one that pays taxes or not. For, for someone else, EBITDA uh, is, can be more important. This is especially true in the merger and acquisition market. And, and just as a side note to that, most valuation work, not just in the United States, but around the world, is conducted for merger and acquisition um, transactions. Um, it's it, it, it has been for the last 40 years and probably will continue to be regardless of the, the specializations. Now, free cash flow isn't a new term, but it's an important term, especially to lenders. Lenders want to know if there's going to be enough money produced by the business to make the payments on the debt. And the debt payments include interest and principal. So while there's some calculations that go into what's the tax 
uh, on, on the earnings, which includes uh, a deduction for the interest expense. It doesn't include deduction for the principal. So more and more lenders, especially mezzanine lenders, uh, banks that grant SBA loans, et cetera, they want to know about this free cash flow. How much money is left over after paying the bank's payment? And is there enough money after giving reasonable consideration for compensation to the owner for running the business um, in order for them to uh, justify lending lending uh, the money to uh, to the buyer? So, okay, thank you. Yeah, it depends on your audience, but free cash flow has <clears throat> become important to uh, lenders. So we talked about EBITDA. I used the term and depreciation is a big part of that. Let's talk about depreciation and there's, you know, your regular depreciation over the, you know, uh, allowed for life of the asset. There's section 179. There's a, a bonus depreciation. Um, as you've told me on qualified property, talk a little bit about that and how, how you would handle that when an owner should use those accelerations, et cetera. Well, an ongoing business, um, that is, is acquiring uh, new equipment or or uh, even doing uh, tenant improvements to a building is, is uh, afforded several opportunities for depreciation in the year that those assets go into service. One is they can depreciate it over an estimated useful life. And that's mostly in tables that are published by the Internal Revenue Service. You know, if you, if you, you, you bought a truck, What's the estimated useful life? If you bought a computer, what's the estimated useful life? But there are a couple of provisions that have actually been uh, available to uh, business uh, taxpayers for quite a number of years. One of those is Section 179. Section 179 came in when uh, uh, the economy was stagnant and manufacturers were saying, you know, uh, people aren't buying from us. Businesses aren't buying and, and we need some help. So Congress passed this section 179 saying, if you buy assets for your business, non-real estate assets, then you can write them off up to a certain dollar value all at once, instead of writing them off over five, seven, 10 or 20 years. And that suited the intended purpose of getting uh, money moving into capital investments for businesses. Bonus depreciation is sort of like uh, a section 179 on steroids. Um, it's bigger. It has uh, uh, almost unlimited uh, amounts that can be written off in that first year of, of putting an asset into depreciation or in, into service and includes um, real estate type assets. Now, it wouldn't be the building itself, but it could be electrical systems or plumbing systems or wiring systems you know, or telephone or security systems, big ticket items that uh, cost lots of money to put into a building. In fact, there's even a section in 179 and, uh, and, and bonus depreciation that if you buy a building and you do tenant improvements in on the interior, up to 2 million bucks, you can write it all off that first year. So in anticipation, why would a business want to do this when it makes the value of their assets on their balance sheet go down? Well, first of all, these are tax benefits. And even if writing off a large investment like this, and maybe it was financed, so um, 
you write the whole investment off uh, because it's allowed by law and it might not be allowed next year because Congress is kind of funny about uh, passing last minute tax legislation that is a surprise to everybody. And how would you like to be surprised and find out this asset that you put into uh, into use that should have a 15 year life normally and you could have written it all off this year. Next year, you can't write but one fifteenth off, even though you've already declared that uh, this asset should be written off faster. Um, that That's not useful. On the balance sheet, on the other hand, a, a published balance sheet other than the one on the tax return is not obligated to use tax depreciation. You could take your half million dollar investment in, say, uh, you know, land mover or dump trucks or something like that. And, you know, it, it's, it's amazing the cost of capital equipment these days. And you could write it all off for tax purposes and not write it all off for book purposes because it's allowed. It's not in conflict with the Internal Revenue Code. And it shows a higher value on your balance sheet because you haven't taken all that depreciation for book purposes. Now, there, there's, some, there's some things that have to happen on subsequent tax returns that now don't have that depreciation, but the books do. But this is how we handle it for many, many of our business clients so that they're not showing that there's no value on the balance sheet uh, to their property and equipment. Uh, so that's long and short. Very interesting, Bill. Uh, I'm just going to share that when we look at a deal with either a client who's a buyer or a seller, what we want to get out is when are there going to have to be capital expenditures? doesn't matter what they wrote off. It's when are, when is the buyer going to start spending money on that stuff? That, that's right. And frankly, that's part of the free cash flow analysis. Yes. It isn't what's mm -hmm. the an expense, it's what's the cash flow. Right? You expect this much in sales, you expect you know this kind of profit after tax, but what else do you have to do? Do you have to increase working capital because your business is growing? Do you have to replenish or rebuy um, new capital assets or or upgrade for new technology. You know, the, these are these are business decisions and not just tax-related decisions, but you're right. What's happening with the cash flows? We like to see a projection that goes out four years, and there's a reason we go four years. In IPOs, the uh, SEC wanted 10 years of projections forever. And I always thought 10 years of projections were nonsense because I have no idea what I'm going to be doing 10 years from now on this day, whether I'm here or not. So they gradually came to the conclusion, well, maybe there's some argument for that. So they dropped it to five years and now they allow four years. So we kind of use a four year projection um, benchmark when we're doing valuation. And, and it, it absolutely requires the involvement of management because we can't do those projections. John, I know in your experience, you've you've come across this too. Management runs their business, but they've never done a budget, which means they've never thought about, well, what are we going to sell next year? And what kind of our costs are, are going to go up or down next year? If we can get management to do that and tell us how they get to next year, we can extrapolate and go out another three years subject to their approval. But it is an exercise in projections when it comes to um, opining a value on a business based on projections. And it's it's always a challenge. It is, yeah. You mentioned economic situation as part of the analysis. Um, what we've gone through recently with COVID, how do you handle those tailwinds 
or or a company that's had headwinds? Well, this has been an interesting discussion uh, amongst myself and, and my colleagues from uh, not, not just the United States, but also in other parts of the world. Um, we've done valuations for companies that just made a fortune during COVID. They were in the right place at the right time where people just absolutely had to have what they have. We've also done work for companies like I think the majority of companies that experienced serious slowdowns had to lay people off or delay buying inventory or um, all kinds of things. But what we're finding, and, and by the way, there's a, a McKinsey study on this for when it's expected certain sectors of the economy to come back to pre-COVID uh, business volumes, uh, and it's different by sector. They, they haven't updated it. It's, it's now two and a half years old. And we will look at that and we'll talk to management. Okay, you've had a downturn in your business and now you're selling. When do you expect this business to come back to normal? They're closer to it than we are. They're much more of an expert in their business than we are. We'll also look at other things. Say in the, the domestic market, uh, we, we did a valuation uh, about a year ago for a company that does staging you know, they put furniture in your house so that, you know, a potential buyer can see what it might look like if they bought that house. And they had a downturn, but it was small. But people still wanted to sell their homes. And after about a six-month downturn, they went not only back to pre-COVID levels, but farther. Because the urgency, it seemed, for people to sell their homes so they could move into newer homes or move out of the area or put their money into retirement or, or whatever uh, became more urgent. And those guys did well. Now, we've also done work for, for a company that was doing massive imports of masks and gowns and, and, and covers and all those things that suddenly became absolutely essential for healthcare workers uh, to have uh, during the, the height of COVID treatment. And this last year, uh, they posted a small loss. The, the, the volume uh, was less than half, but more importantly, it isn't just the volume that that, that made, a, made a difference. It's also, it took them time to rescale their business to the lower volumes. They weren't prepared for the increase, but they, they, they staffed up for it and they made it happen. They also were not prepared for the decrease. So if we were to value this particular company for sale, we might just take those two years out say this is not part of normal earnings. And in the valuation profession, you can do that as long as you explain, okay, well, we're gonna ignore this year. Um, typically we'll, we'll have a business that has uh, four years of history and say year two or three is a loss. And they've got 20 different reasons why it was a loss, but for us to restate that loss to something positive is really just a guess. So we leave it out. We don't include it in the waiting, but we explain, look, these guys had a loss. You can see that they've recovered. We're going to give more weight to the most recent year as the most likely to reoccur, but we explain it. And that's how we deal with the COVID uh, ins and outs. Great. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned before that the bulk of business valuations done around the world are for M&A. Right. But we take out divorces and estate tax disputes and things like that. 
And we talk about a valuation for a buy-sell deal versus a company wants one for planning or the end of, the owner wants one to know where they are for when they, when can they retire. Is there much difference in those kind of valuations or is it are they all done the same? You know, they're really all done the same regardless of, of that particular purpose. Um, interesting, you should mention people who are planning for retirement. Nobody used to plan for retirement. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many small businesses never sold because the owner couldn't find anybody that would operate it the way they did. So more and more, we're being asked to consult on what value might be today and then make recommendations for what might be done to increase value, reduce risk uh, into the future. Uh, you know, it, it might be something as simple as having some kind of structured mid-management that's never existed before because as most small businesses uh, run today, they're micromanaged by one person who started the business and is still the head. And if that person was gone, well, nobody else knows enough to keep that business running the same way. There might also be some, some things uh, that could increase profitability. Okay, well, you know, if you had this new computer program to help you with just-in-time inventory, uh, you could reduce some of your carrying costs and therefore increase your profits. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's as simple as telling people, look, you know, you're still using Windows 7 and you have a horrid hacking risk here that a buyer is going to say, well, I, I've got to spend money to, uh, you know, uh, improve the security of, of the data for this company. And, uh, you know, I, I expect you to uh, discount the price accordingly. Whereas if it's done on a controlled basis over the next two, two years or so, then they wouldn't have to give something up at the time of sale uh, because of uh, uh, an obvious risk deficiency uh, for that particular business. Um, we have more and more clients coming to us for exactly what you're talking about, John, planning for well, what am I going to do or what's going to happen if I want to retire or what if I die? Yeah. It, it, what you just mentioned, Bill, uh, about the, the owner being the one person who can do things no one else can and do some of them, we call that an owner dependency. And that wow. is high on the risk list. But let's carry on this. I have two more things, and one of them ties into what you were just talking about. What what are the things these business owners can do to increase value? Uh, and you know, just say over what kind of what is a reasonable time period that you want to see that they've done things, and then you can track them to say, yes, it worked. Well, you know, the the the, the end of that is is the question: How long? I think three years is a, is is a, is a good good time um look even in our firm and we think we we think we do things on a very structured basis um you know we're looking at some software change to increase our own efficiency and productivity but it's a big project first we're not going to even start it until maybe june next year and then working with the people that uh, we're going to buy this software from they're telling us take three or four months for implementation well, three or four months isn't a long period of time, but it is when you're already busy because it means you have to carve it out. And that's true for virtually every business, small business, medium-sized business, big business. Making time to create infrastructure changes has to be deliberate, has to be planned, and has to be uh, with a, a, a plan that's going to set milestones 
uh, with expectations for people to hit those. And most business owners, especially small business owners, they're already busy. They're busy taking care of customers and hiring, firing uh, employees and keeping track of inventories and, you know, and lease obligations for, can we stay in our business location or do we have to move? And da, 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 da. Even buying a new phone system can be a three-month project. So, it, it, you know, if, if you try and rush somebody through suggestions for how to reduce risk or increase profitability or both, there has to be enough time. And the owner has to know that, uh, that they can feel comfortable that they've got enough time to get these things in. You, if, if you tell them it's got to be done in three to six months, most of them just won't do it. They just, well, you know, it's too yep. much work. It's too much trouble. I don't want to do it. Um, but if you, the consultant, can sit there and say, look, you know, if you do these things, you have a strong chance of increasing the value of your business 10 to 50%. Most of them are going to listen to that. Uh, it's It's well known that People who own businesses, generally, it's their biggest asset. You know, it's not their house, not their cars, not their retirement accounts. It's their business. Mm -hmm. And if they monetize that someday by selling it to somebody else, whether it's inside or to a third party or, or, or whatever, then the family is going to miss out on the legacy, the monetary legacy that that owner has created. And I think that's really too bad. You and I both know that most small businesses don't get sold. There's no plan. And it's usually it's sold after the owner has died and the surviving family doesn't really know how to run the business and doesn't know how to find somebody that would pay them a fair value for it. And that's really too bad. Yeah, I have seen multiple cases where usually it's dad died and one of the kids took over or the spouse took over. And they don't know what they're doing. And it wasn't pretty. Uh, yeah. I want to finish up with something that's really confusing for me. And I don't know if there's an easy answer, but people will say, well, what's the basis in the business? And I go, that is way above my accounting pay grade. <laughs> it is not an easy calculation, is it? Well, uh, actually, the concept of basis is simple. But if you don't keep track of it as you go along, then you're right. It can be complicated. So in our firm, um, I'm I'm a teacher. I, I teach new staff and, and experienced staff tax concepts. And we've been this last couple of years spending a great deal of time on basis because the IRS now requires annual tax returns to submit schedules that show what the basis of shareholders and partners are. So basis is simply this. It's the money you put in minus, plus the money that you make minus the money that you take out. And if there's anything left, then you have basis. Uh, some business owners are lucky enough to put money in, have their business make money, and then they take it out as it's as it's being made. And and, and if the business is doing well, then, then they're doing really well. And they leave a certain level of capital in the business, and that becomes their basis. Um, it's important uh, to keep track of basis now more than ever, because if a partner or shareholder in a subchapter S should take out more than their basis, the current revenue code requires them to pay capital gains tax on that excess distribution. Now, years past, say years prior to last year, when the IRS did not enforce this basis disclosure information, businesses would have losses 
and partners and shareholders would take their share of the loss on their personal return. Uh -uh, it's not allowed, but they would do it anyway, and the IRS had no means to follow it up. Now, requiring these basis statements and forms to go with that subchapter S return or that 1065 gives the IRS a database of basis. So if somebody has taken money out and it doesn't show on their K-1 that there's an amount in excess of basis for them to pay tax on, the IRS has a means to catch it and to come up with a letter saying, oh, you know what? We think you should have reported this amount as a distribution in excess of your basis. Give us the 20%. Oh, and by the way, penalties and interest. Then the onus is on the individual taxpayer to show that the IRS is wrong. But generally, they're going to be right because practitioners such as ourselves who, who do these basis calculations and submit them to the Internal Revenue Service with those business returns, it's just like W-2s now. W-2s go in. If you don't report your W-2 income, the IRS knows about it. And they come back and they say, oh, we, we don't think you reported all your income. Um so, John, it's there. Basis is not difficult, but it has to be. You have to do it as you go along. Otherwise, it becomes quite the, the, the little puzzle to figure out the prior year to where are we today. Good. Thank you so much, Bill. And again, I'm with Bill Hanlon with Hanlon Moss Yee in Seattle. Uh, Bill is uh, a tax expert and definitely a business valuation expert. One of my go-to people on that. Definitely my top go-to person on that when something is needed. Uh, Bill, I really appreciate your being here. Uh, thank you so much. John, anytime. Thank you very much. And I right. look forward to talking to you soon.